This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Veronica Martinez-Basuda about her book, Migrant Citizenship, Race, Rights, and Reform in the U.S. Farm Labor Camp Program, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Dr. Martinez-Basuda is an associate professor at the Cornell University's ILR School. Migrant Citizenship examines the Farm Security Administration's Migrant Labor Camp Program and its roles in the daily lives of a diverse number of farm-working families. Dr. Martinez-Marcidas thoroughly investigates the way public policy was used to intervene in the lives of migrant workers and how these workers sought to transform their own lives and the country around them through appealing to America's democratic principles and forming movements to pursue social justice and civil rights. Martinez Masuda's study showcases the many ways the FAS's history and these migrant workers is integral to understanding both the historical and modern struggles in farm labor relations. Dr. Martinez Masuda, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Derek, and uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. So I guess to get started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this project and why you decided to study it? Sure. Um, So I usually like to answer that question by saying that I think this project came to me in two ways, one more personal um, and the other by just the good fortune of having a really great community of professors and fellow graduate students at the University of Texas at Austin, which is where I earned my PhD. So the personal link is that I think much of my research interests more generally come from the fact that I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrants who came to the United States undocumented um, sometime in the early to mid-1970s. And I came of age in Los Angeles, surrounded by other immigrant families much like my own, and really grew up witnessing how they navigated their own civic membership and their political identities, um, despite their legal status or other barriers they encountered. And in fact, I've been thinking a lot about this in recent days, because now that we're uh, sort of homeschooling, those of us that are parents to little ones, I'm working on teaching my children to read. And it occurred to me that my father was mostly illiterate um, for much of his lifetime. And you know, I didn't really understand what that meant as a child, but now as a historian, I've been thinking about that and wondering like, well, what did that mean for him in his work life and, you know, participating in his union or he was part of a basketball league, I remember. And I never really thought about um, 
how that could have affected his sort of involvement uh, as a worker, as a community member and so forth. So in some ways, those types of questions have always been with me. Um, but the more scholarly reasons why I just uh, decided to study farm workers in particular and this camp program is that I was reading quite a bit in graduate school about the experiences of agricultural workers um, because I uh, attended UT Austin in the field of borderland studies. So I was reading a lot in Chicano history and I became kind of obsessed by this question that I try to lay out in the book around migrant citizenship and what I sort of allude to as a paradox in migrant citizenship, by which I mean that, you know, historically migrant farm workers, because of stringent state and local residency laws, um, as well as, of course, racial and class prejudice, they've been people who've been left without a place to enact their basic rights. So, for instance, even if they were formerly U.S. citizens, um, certainly during the early 20th century, which is sort of where this book is focused, migrant farm workers were regularly denied the right to vote, um, sometimes to send their children to school, certainly to access public aid um, or to receive medical care. And this was all because they were considered non-residents or non-citizens. In fact, that's sometimes how state laws would write it, that they were non-citizens um, of the community or of the state in which they were seeking services. So, you know, I believe that this the transitory nature of migrant work itself marked all farm workers, again, regardless of their formal status, as alien. And that always really intrigued me because I, you know, again, connecting back to my personal story, I saw farm workers as important figures that could teach us a lot about the intersections of race, labor, and citizenship and how they've mediated this condition of non-citizenship and um, and still successfully, you know, work to validate their own identities and political claims. Yeah, I think that's sort of interesting where you have sort of, you know, a twofold approach to a project where one one side is sort of, you know, scholarly, quote unquote, you know, in the academy. And then one is sort of, you know, your own life sort of thinking about how can, you know, how have I been a part of this history? Yeah, I think so many historians, I mean, it's it's sort of a little bit of a cliche, but so many of us are affected by those stories we hear, right? The, the, the stories our, our families tell us or our communities tell us around the kitchen table and such, and um, they linger, they stay with us and have a way of coming back. <laughs> and so when, when looking at your study, how does it sort of contribute to the history of both the Farm Security Administration and the New Deal in general? Well, I think in some ways I'm hoping to put these um, different historiographies into conversation. So one historiography thinking through the Farm Security Administration as sort of a farm labor agency, that's where labor scholars have really paid attention to it, Um, in particular how this agency by certainly the World War II period is a a major, you know, key figure in um, in the guest worker programs, both uh, through Mexico and um, parts of the Caribbean and and managing those kinds of arrangements. Um, And then the other historiography, not just the historiography of the New Deal more generally, but really specifically the agrarian New Deal. And it's really kind of reformist intentions um, across rural America. So with regard to the New Deal scholarship, I think there's been some really uh, important work recently, um, sort of more political history or ideological history, if you will, that focuses on the resettlement administration 
which was the Farm Security Administration's predecessor agency. So for those that might not be as familiar with these um, agencies, the Resettlement Administration was an independent agency created by executive order in 1935. In 1937, it becomes the Farm Security Administration, and that agency is placed under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And there's, again, a really interesting political history there that others have written about. But that work, that scholarship that kind of looks at the, um, the programming, the planning, you know, the sort of reform side of that really centers on the agency's planners and on the rehabilitation, particularly of small farmers during the 1930s. Um, and so I argue in migrant citizenship that as a result, these studies have largely kept migrant farm workers marginal to their analysis, especially the workers that were part of the industrial farm labor system prior to the 1930s. So most of those, as we know, were primarily immigrant farm workers, certainly blacks, even before their displacement in sharecropping and tenant farming uh, in the 1930s, and more generally people of color. And so because that scholarship has neglected to consider how these individuals fared within, you know, this sort of side of the agrarian New Deal, um, I argue that they've really missed uh, the FSA's commitment to agrarian reform in this kind of more civil rights uh, terms, if you will. So that's one part of it, arguing that the FSA's social democratic project, as I describe it in the book, actually reached far deeper and wider than we've previously acknowledged, right? That that intent um, expanded in ways we haven't really recognized um, in the New Deal scholarship. Um, and the other side of that, the New Deal intervention has to do with the periodization. Um, and all I'll say about that right now is that I think for a long time, the prevailing thought has been that for various reasons, the more reformist phase of the New Deal had ended by the end of the 1930s. Um, but this camp program really develops at the end of the 1930s. It, it expands most notably between 1937 and 1942. So. I feel like it really, for me, stood out as an important exception to our understanding of the New Deal's political intent and struggle for survival, that here you have an example of how New Deal liberals were really pushing some of this reformist spirit through the 1940s. Um, and by not considering that, I, I feel that New Deal scholarship, or I guess to rephrase that, by defining the sort of end of the reformist New Deal in the 1930s as a sort of story of declension, we actually failed to see how this program embodied one of the New Deal's most remarkable reformist and democratic achievements that here we have, you know, again, an example of something really quite extraordinary that somehow remained alive, even as much of the New Deal was, um, you know, was being attacked by the end of the 1930s. And, I, and this relates to, to the sort of second field of labor scholarship, um, because I think in part due to this periodization that labor scholars have also missed the mark in this sense, uh, because, again, they've mainly emphasized the FSA's role in managing the supply of workers um, at the onset of World War II. And therefore, they, too, have ignored the FSA's unprecedented commitment to farm workers um, sort of, again, enfranchisement and the sort of democratic vision that they were trying to expand to give farm workers political power as worthy citizens. Um, and, you know, the importance of that 
particularly uh, as farm workers had been excluded from much of the federal protections provided by the New Deal. Um, so that's why, you know, I sort of think in in bringing these two historiographies together, we could see how, in fact, some New Dealers um, were quite remarkable in intervening on behalf of those most disenfranchised in rural society, um, you know, agricultural workers. And I think that's really important, you know, because I think for a lot of people, some or especially, you know, non-historians, they might look at, you know, when a historian says, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make an intervention in the field by reperiodizing something to include five more years. And they're just like, is that really that big of a deal? But, you know, I think as you're showing, you know, here, you know, the prevailing thought of, you know, by the time period that you're studying, you know, the New Deal isn't doing much for people. There's not much reform going on. And you're saying, no, there are things that are still going on. They're actually just starting. And that allows you to do, you know, what your first point was to actually study these migratory uh, laborers themselves and what's happening with them. And so how they're able to take advantage of these programs that are just kicking off during this period that a lot of scholars say, yeah, there's, there's not really much going on in the way of reform. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And it's almost like, I don't know if it's expanding or sort of filling gaps, but it's recognizing that we don't just sort of have these shifts and they're like automatic that it's, you know, there's the gray area, there's the trouble, there's the negotiations. So it is true that this agency becomes, um, you know, it's, it's in charge of facilitating the guest worker programs. And that makes it appear as if by 42, they're this pro grower, you know, pro uh, extraction <laughs> uh, type of agency, you know, let's get the cheap workers out here un- under the best conditions for agriculture. But in truth, if we just sort of simply, you know, sort of agree that that's the transition that's happened, then we miss that struggle that's going on underground and, and which these New Dealers wrote about in their memoirs, the, the real internal struggles to save what they had going, you know, to save, again, the more reformist side and the social intent behind their political projects. So um, in part, I guess it's a not just expanding the period, but asking us to slow down a bit before we say that transition has happened. And so if we look at, you know, these migratory labor camps that you're studying in this program, one of the things that you first look at in the book is um, gender in these camps and how it how it operates and what it sort of does inside of, you know, the dynamics of the camp and the program itself. And so how do you see gender operating in these camps and why is it important that we pay attention to this? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me that question because I think that gender and um, as a framework, but you know, even sort of specifically in terms of how uh, women and men were operating in this program, is really an essential part of understanding why it was significant and why we should continue as scholars to disrupt the binaries that define home and work life or public-private spheres and so on. And yet, I'm not sure that it's readily apparent upon first opening up this book, migrant citizenship. You know, I, I don't know that. Um, I tried to make it appear so, I guess, even in the the image that um, that covers uh, the book, you know, to say that there was a real presence of both men and women and of families here. Um, and so, you know, this program to me, its history in itself was uniquely gendered. And what I mean by that is that in a fundamental way, farm workers struggle for economic and political justice, especially in this period of the 1930s and 40s, remained intrinsically tied to their domestic environment. 
in a way that really varied from the union activism that was emerging among uh, urban working class families at the time. So while the New Deal in, in much of its recovery measures, for example, were focused on protecting the vitality of the male head of household and were really kind of building up this notion of the family wage, migrant farm workers couldn't really abide by that, right? They depended on a family economy. In most cases, all members, including children and elders, uh, worked and traveled um, alongside one another. And that was the structure of that work life. So consequently, migrants understood their status as workers and as citizens, as intimately connected with their identity as fathers, as mothers, as again, members of extended families, which sometimes included their work crews. Um, and so in migrant citizenship, you know, I say it, it's important that the FSA officials in talking about, um, you know, kind of collectivism in a more inclusionary sense of citizenship, a more participatory sense, participatory sense of citizenship, that that was really meaningful. And in that way, they were really subverting a trend uh, happening more generally where, you know, the U.S. was kind of celebrating individual <laughs> enterprise um, as a way to recover from the Depression. But yet, um, I also suggest that even as they did this, as they themselves disrupted, you know, uh, understandings of, again, those binaries, as they acknowledged that the camps were dual purple, um, excuse me, the camps were dual purpose spaces of home and work life, they nevertheless did reinforce dominant gendered standards um, and did so in, within this project. So uh, rather than disrupting, again, these binaries, they, for example, reinforced women's dependent status upon men by, in say, their uh, employment records describing only men's work in the fields and not women's work or crediting men's work in the camp uh, as hours uh, towards their rent payment versus for women, it was just volunteer work, you know, that sort of um, practice. And I argue that by doing so, they ironically further contributed to women's disenfranchisement. So as they're trying to talk about the political power of farm workers, they themselves are undermining this project by reinforcing or re further domesticating migrant women's contributions. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I think is also pretty ironic is that it's in this moment, certainly by the early 1940s, where at least in the urban context, we're celebrating women's labor outside the home and their contributions to national defense. But here you have in farm labor, where women have always been working, this almost reversal in this federal program where women are, are you know, experiencing all of these kinds of lessons and workshops that they're jobs and responsibilities are foremost as mothers and as nurturers and, you know, all of that sort of uh, rhetoric, which was, I, I argue, contradictory to kind of the broader vision these officials had. Yeah, I find that interesting, you know, this sort of idea that, you know, these officials, they have what could be a sort of, you know, radical vision of citizenship and sort of belonging during this period, um, especially, as you said, in the face of, you know, this sort of increasing culture of individualism in the country. And so they have this sort of idea of citizenship that can embrace, you know, a sort of community mindset that other community that some communities and some people have in the country, and yet they are still sort of 
you know, clinging to gender norms and undermining that at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's true also in terms of class distinctions that here they are building this community structure. And yet, if you look at the structure, you'll see that there were these divisions even embedded within that where more permanent workers lived in one part of the camp and more temporary workers lived in another part of the camp. And often that was quite racialized. So, you know, they have this big vision <laughs> of, of, a, of a, you know, a, a more inclusive uh, democratic society. And yet, um, you still see the tension around that in their own practices, right? The limitations behind that in their own practices. And so speaking about those tensions in the case of, say, like you were just talking about, you know, where people are living in these camps, one of the things that you focus on is the literal built environment of these migratory labor camps and how that affects affects just how they're able to actually operate and just the actual thought process behind this because they weren't just sort of set up willy-nilly without any sort of forethought. And so what's going on there? Yeah, and I this was really one of the areas in this work um, that surprised me the most. I didn't expect to have to dive into a sort of, you know, the architectural history um, of of not just public housing, but of workers housing. And um, it really happened almost uh, immediately upon researching this topic. I I. Um, had been advised by my dissertation advisor at the time that there was this migratory camp in La Mesa, Texas. And uh, I was thinking about writing about farm workers. I had no idea at the time, in fact, that it was part of this broader uh, network of federal camps. So um, we knew that this location uh, was much of the structure of this location was still there of the, of the old camp. Um, my advisor, Emilio Zamora, he had been on a board for the Texas Historical Commission that was determining if this site, in fact, uh, deserved a landmark status. So this is how he kind of came across the camp. Um, so I went out there and um, I knew immediately there was a big clue um, that there was something more meaningful here going on than just, you know, here's a labor camp where workers were concentrated for hiring, um, you know, almost immediately I could tell that there was something more meaningful or purposeful, maybe I should say about it. And, um, so I went out there, I don't know how well I can, I can kind of map this out for our listeners, but I'll try to describe what I saw. Um, so off the main road to, and most of these camps, you know, these are agricultural communities, so they're out in kind of near the fields, there's not much around. And so usually one sort of main road. And and this camp in La Mesa, Texas, um, was off the main highway and you would enter through just the one road. So it was like the one road to enter and exit the camp. And that road then circled around what you might picture to be like a big oval. And alongside the road facing sort of in, facing uh, each other were small houses, which at the time would have been um, probably metal shelters or small wood shelters. Um, so they were lined across both sides of the road, again, facing in. And in the center of the oval was a big building, uh, which would have been used, I, I then discovered, as the community center. This is where the nursery schools were held for the camps, the elementary school, um, where huge dances were held for the surrounding area, not just the, those who lived in the camps, where meetings were held and so forth. Um, also centrally located, but closer to the camp's entrance, were a couple of other buildings. Um, 
a little bit smaller, but uh, I later discovered that those buildings would have typically housed the medical clinic or um, um, often the administrative functions of the camp, things like the offices of the camp manager or uh, maybe other federal officials like um, individuals from the U.S. Employment Service who by the mid to late 30s would have been in each of these camps uh, to facilitate labor arrangements between the local farmers and residents. So that was sort of the interior. There are, you know, other things going on, the bathrooms and showers and such, but off to the side, and this was still visible in La Mesa in the early 2000s, was a separate road. So it's outside of the oval uh, off the main road, but still within walking distance. And On this separate row, there was another grouping of houses, these a bit more developed. Um, And in the 30s and 40s, they would have been called things like labor homes or garden homes rather than shelters. And those were originally intended, as I was suggesting, for more permanent agricultural workers and their families. So people who had employment year round and you had to prove that, in fact, you were employed, uh, say, at a local cannery or packing plant and such. So when I arrived in La Mesa, and again, much of the structure, thankfully, was still there, I was pretty shocked. I I knew that there was something to that arrangement, again, that was purposeful. You know, why why not just lay out a bunch of shelters in a row, you know, even if you have the sort of one entrance. Um, And so then after that, I decided to kind of really think through how I could, especially once I discovered that it was part of a network of federal camps, how I can locate some blueprints, some aerial photos and such. And thankfully um, the program was well-documented in part because it was, it was so uh, extraordinary um, And uh, so there were blueprints, a whole collection of them, and they were amazing. (laughs) So you you probably saw in my book, I provide one image of uh, Camp in Tulare, and you see its uh, hexagonal shape. And that's exactly what I discovered, that much like the La Mesa camp, most of these camps were built in this very kind of through this very strict spatial order, right? That there was very little informality to the arrangement of buildings, of plantings, of roads. Everything was purposefully planned. Um, And indeed, most of the camps were hexagonal, octagonal, some other kind of circular arrangement this way. Um, And there's a funny, in one of the oral histories of uh, one of the architects, Vernon DeMars, you know, he he says uh, by the late 30s, early 40s, this was a really standardized process, uh, standardized process camp construction. So he says, you know, it was basically like we'd get a call out, you know, from Texas or something to uh, San Francisco is where the office was based um, for the engineers and planners and such. And he says, and and they basically was like ordering a camp out of a Sears catalog. (laughs) They'd say, what we need is this, you know, a camp that could hold up to floods, you know, and just, and that was half the time the architects themselves didn't go out there. Those who designed the camps, they would sort of send out the plans. So in my book, Migrant Citizenship, I started to look very closely into who these engineers were, who these architects were and their backgrounds. And I discovered that they were indeed social engineers in the very truest form, that they were deeply influenced, um, very much invested ideologically in the relationship between spatial arrangement, so architecture and design, and its implications, the social sort of community side of that, right, in constructing communities. Um, so it's 
what was really important to me, especially we were talking about the historiographical interventions, to note that here's yet another example about how these were more than just labor centers, that they were built literally to address more than just the economic concerns of agrarian reform, but designed intentionally as social, social and cultural democratic experiments, right? So they were in, into the very design itself was this sense of how the space would operate to produce the kind of democratic reality that they envisioned. Um, and yet the most important lesson for me, however, about the camps built environment came in realizing also that such a space, right, first built for community formation or to advance migrants' democratization could so easily function in an opposite in an oppositional way than what was originally intended. So some architectural historians have in fact written about the camps as sites of regulation, as control, right? So they rather than seeing, say, the the circular structure as um as a way to cultivate community, they write about it as, you know, part of the, again, kind of hermetic order, how it was part of the, you know, way to develop a more policing mechanism to regulate migrant behavior. And that's also accurate by, you know, especially by the late forties after 1943, for sure, the camps become increasingly utilized this way to facilitate growers interests. And so in fact, in their very name, you get that kind of uh, again, transformation in the, the built intent. The camps themselves become called labor supply centers, whereas in its early stage, they were farm workers communities. Um, and, you know, you continue to see the kind of structure uh, become transformed, as I was describing. And and one of the most striking examples of that, I, I won't go too much further into this point, but um, it was hard for me, again, to ignore the importance of how the camps become used um, to intern Japanese and Japanese Americans after Executive Order 9066. So not only are FSA architects themselves brought in to design Japanese internment camps, which I thought was astonishing. Um, but the camps themselves, several of them, get turned into spaces in which to um, house and intern, um, really to imprison uh, Japanese uh, origin people during World War II. And so here it is, right, the same built environment, uh, enhancing democracy and citizenship for some, and the nullification of rights and imprisonment for others. And one of the things that you were just sort of hinting at there was how, you know, the camp sort of built environment, um, how it was imagined, um, how things were imagined they would sort of play out in the camp was thought one way by officials to a certain extent um, and viewed that way by a lot of historians and thought a different way by migrants, that migrants would act a different way. They would use their environment in a different way. And so what was some of the things that you um, were able to see in the records about how migrants uh, were able to use, you know, the camps for their own community and how they shaped community with them? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I didn't expect to go that uh, deep into the kind of built-in plan, right? The architecture behind these social relations. And, and once I did, and once I saw how significant it was as a force, right? Sort of navigating these social relations at the time, I knew that I had to somehow uncover 
well, then how did the camp's inhabitants feel about all of this? Which, you know, we know this as historians, that side of the history is often the side that's not recorded, that's harder to find and um, to uncover. So I was very fortunate that in South Texas, where um, particularly along the U.S.-Mexico border, where the FSA established seven camps out of the nine they had in the state, uh, many of those individuals who lived in the camp, their families that lived in the camp are still in that region. And so I was able to uh, carry out a number of oral histories that um, proved incredibly useful, as I mentioned, because so much of this site hadn't been documented and really re-narrating. So what did that environment mean? Um, so chapter three in migrant citizenship um, in particular looks at their architectural reading, if you will. And I highlight this notion of um, what I call the mental map, uh, which is a, a term geographers have, have uh, established. And, and I say that, you know, without prompting them, so many of the individuals I sat down with to, to hear their stories about camp life started our conversations by drawing a map of the camp that they lived in. And so, you know, sort of the same thing. I, that was an instant clue <laughs> that the space itself, right, the built environment itself was central to narrating what happened in these camps. And so I could say a little bit more about that if uh, you're interested. But just to go back to this idea of the, the tensions, right, the, the kind of questions then that Camp Life created, um, I think that for me in hearing then what individuals said about their experience, I knew immediately and I, I, I kind of figured this based on what I knew about um, the farm work experience for Mexicans uh, in particular in the early 20th century. But um, there was always this tension in terms of when the program started as it was built around in particular white so-called Dust Bowl families arriving in California that the agency sort of played up the fact that farm workers were displaced, right? So these were, in their words, um, farm workers in a strange land or, you know, I think one publication is by Paul Taylor, Dorothea Lang, it's titled Adrift on the Land, <laughs> Homeless, Aimless Wanderers. There was all this sort of um, emphasis on being uprooted and displaced. And that was important because it allowed the agency to claim that they needed these camps to provide stabilizing environments, to rehabilitate these destitute, you know, former farmers and to, again, build cooperation and understanding among them. But as I was suggesting, most of the farm worker families who occupied the camps by the early 1940s, when the camp program expanded, had actually worked as migratory farm workers for a number of years. So they had very well established, you know, uh, family migrations, connections, work crews, um, what I call regional communities that were connected both to their place of origin, but also all along their migratory routes. So, um, and this was true, not just for, for Mexican farm workers traveling out of South Texas, but in very important ways for other workers as well. So um, if uh, the, some of the labor officials in the program uh, identified, for example, um, quote unquote, origin islands of African-American farm workers traveling from parts of Georgia or Florida up the Atlantic coast that, in other words, they were traveling in groups of individuals who were, if not blood related, then certainly from the same communities. And even among the Dust Bowl refugees them, uh, themselves, who scholars have, you know, really uh, described as rugged individualists and, you know, all of that, um, 
Linda Gordon's work on Dorothea Lang actually has really good evidence about how many of them actually traveled west in migrant caravans. So I, I thought it was really important as we acknowledge how the camp's you know, physical structure aimed to give migrants a, a sense of place or to root them, that migrants themselves also ascribe meaning to the camps and to the built environment in their own terms. And, and for many of them, again, that they uh, had well-established understandings of community, of identity, of national identity, and so forth, uh, even prior to arriving in the camps, which they continued to maintain. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and I think it's just really interesting and, you know, really needed to be able to, you know, tell a, a good history of, you know, people like migratory workers, you know, people who might not necessarily have, you know, as much documentation as a huge federal program to illustrate how they're able to use, you know, the world around them that might not have been made with, you know, all the intentions of how they would want to use it, how, but how they're actually able to. Yeah. And I, I just felt like it, it's still the case today that if we don't account for all of the social labor involved in that, right, for farm workers as they're migrating or people more generally as they're migrating for work to maintain their communal relations or to form new kin networks across space. I mean, then we sort of miss the power in that, right, the kind of consciousness in that. And one of the other things that you look at when it comes to, you know, these migratory camps and the reform efforts that you spoke about earlier in terms of, you know, the whole purpose of this book is medical reform and how that would look. And so what did you find when it came to how, you know, these camps worked to sort of, you know, instigate or rethink medical reform and medicine? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I feel really strongly more and more so now with some distance uh, from this project that this is easily one of the most remarkable achievements that the FSA accomplished, particularly in, in this sort of broader uh, terms of human rights. I mean, it was quite incredible um, because they, you know, in fact, I think this was part of how they were criticized, that they were a farm agency. They're supposed to be, you know, resettling, uh, again, landless farmers and just, you know, bringing kind of... Um, our rural landscape back in order. And here they are creating a medical program, right? Establishing um, medical clinics, in some cases, hospitals. I mean, really kind of not just small, <laughs> small uh, efforts, but really uh, a major, major program. And so the medical care program actually started under the resettlement administration. So immediately um, in 1936, these officials understood that access to medical care was a key element to rural people's rehabilitation, that they would never stabilize without access to healthcare. And I, you know, I think that's why I hope that people pay attention to this program in considering even debates today about universal health care, because they understood that the, the costs, right, were nowhere close to the benefits of caring for these individuals in terms of what they, you know, brought into our society and, and what they contributed. So when the FSA takes over the 
resettlement administration's responsibilities, it actually um, decides to expand the medical program considerably. So it's doing more preventive care. It's, again, uh, financing or subsidizing hospitalization for all of its clients. It's providing things like dental services and access to um, dietary both workshops and provisions. And most importantly for me, it decides that it's going to directly tend to migrant farm workers' medical needs. So what they decide to do, the FSA, is establish various state-based medical associations or what were essentially health plans. They were called Agricultural Workers Health Associations. Um, And they were, again, state-run, but federally financed. Um, And I mean, they eventually, they they were so expansive that some figures suggest that they cover anywhere from 75,000 to 200,000 farm workers in their plans at any one time. So that would have included not just the individuals living in the FSA camps, but anybody. Anybody could walk into the camp's clinics and receive care from uh, the medical doctors participating in the program or from the nurses who were key figures here because they actually lived in the camps daily. (laughs) They had their own home in the camp to service um, those who needed it. So that was incredibly (laughs) remarkable, right? That was unprecedented, not only in the sense of what it was willing to provide uh, people who had not had access to medical care, but in the very just sort of sense of forcing the nation to recognize that migrants lacked any Um, you know, really kind of care or or, uh, concern over their inability to receive medical attention, right? That they were um, dying at alarming rates of disease, of malnourishment, of infant mortality, and so forth. So I think that fundamentally, the significance of the program is that it challenged those kind of uh, dehumanizing practices, really, that local communities used in the early 40s, especially to deny farm workers protections that could improve not just their their livelihoods, but their ability to bargain, you know, for a better future. Um, but I, you know, I think I've already kind of hinted at this with other elements to the camp program. There were also limitations. So it's certainly um, one of the most inspiring parts for me of what the agency accomplished, but it too had its issues. And um, in particular, what I found was that, you know, the FSA often reinforced really kind of, again, problematic, biased attitudes that further racialized these um, farm workers and their families in ways that once again undermine the kind of broader uh, political intent behind the camp project. So, for example, uh, the federal officials often talked about migrants and their granny remedies and their quack healers and how, you know, they were just so ignorant to how this impacted their poor health. They uh, really stressed migrants' promiscuity, especially that of Blacks, and said that, you know, this was why there was such um, an enormous spread of venereal disease, although their studies around that were so (laughs) really fundamentally biased and they only tested certain people, you know, and so, but they did that. They kind of played into some of that, that that the families were too ignorant to understand how um, what they ate was inadequate rather than really emphasizing what they also knew through their reports that these levels of disease or of infant mortality stemmed from malnutrition, not from poverty or from, 
you know, cultural ineptness, <laughs> but from lack of resources or lack of, um, you know, access again to, to medical care, to medical attention. Um, and when I, when I talk about the medical program, um, it's really, you know, it's interesting because towards the end of the program, I'll leave this for the readers to uncover, but you see the, the way that, um, political power can sort of operate to undermine projects that are, that are quite promising. And so the FSA's chief medical officer by the late forties is someone named Frederick Mott. And he describes what happens um, to bring this whole program down by 1946 as the unholy alliance between the medical block and the farm block. So what you might not expect to be players with mutual interests join forces um, to undermine this program and uh, what happens, I guess I'll leave for the readers to find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the sort of, again, you know, radical potential of what's going on there, even if it's not exactly, you know, sort of actualized, but, you know, a farm program building hospitals, you know, is something that you just wouldn't think is sort of happening, especially, you know, today you might not really expect, you know, a farm program today to be building hospitals for workers. That's right. Yeah. I uh, was thinking a bit about that recently because I was sort of reacting to some of the statements that were coming out of Florida. Um, maybe you cut on to some of this, but around how uh, the governor there was really pointing to farm worker communities as part of the cause for the rise in COVID cases recently. And, um, you know, just really the way it's uh, been so easy historically uh, still to, you know, today, but to say, yeah, this is some Someone else's problem, they go away, they're going to migrate out. And, you know, next it'll be Georgia's problem, not Florida's problem. And um, so not only to blame them for their, you know, whatever the sort of case may be in, in this moment for, you know, advancing the pandemic, when you've not provided them the resources for medical care <laughs> and medical security. Uh, but on top of that, to say it's someone else's problem. And so, uh, Belglade, Florida was actually one of the places where the Farm Security Administration built a big hospital. We've sort of been looking at how, you know, camp officials thought of uh, their practices and their policies and how they would be sort of, you know, acted on what they would do and then sort of how migrants thought about it. And, you know, your book is called Migrant Citizenship. And so when we talk to think about how, you know, migrants were imagining, you know, America's, you know, um, democratic principles and, and things like that. How were they thinking about them? How were they sort of trying to pursue those um, goals and those principles compared to how, you know, migrant uh, camp officials were thinking about this? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways, it was fundamentally the same vision. Um, you know, the the sort of more <laughs> hopeful vision, if you will, uh, based on the belief, which federal officials really, I mean, they, they touted this through uh, the camp council. So each of these camps had their own system of self-government uh, where migrants elected officials. And, you know, the uh, agency said, this is how we will teach everyday participatory, you know, civic action. This is how we were, we're going to train migrant farm workers to use their political voices. And, and farm workers were invested in that vision. They were invested in the FSA's um, sort of notions that all people, you know, were entitled to equal protection and equal access before the law and to political power and representation. I mean, it was really built on these kind of 
classic, you know, liberal understandings of democracy. And, and that suited migrant farm workers, of course. They, they wanted to, you know, attain the freedoms, privileges, liberties protected by the U.S. Constitution, certainly. Um, and if they could have this federal agency working to help build them into full citizens and, and to, again, to empower them, well, then all the better, right? Um, that, that was certainly uh, something they were invested in. But, you know, much like uh, I just described with the medical program, this effort too had its limitations. And um, I opened one of my chapters, uh, chapter five, by uh, describing an exchange between these two ethnographers um, who've arrived in a camp in Ventura County, California. It was a camp of, uh, it was the El Rio camp, and it at the time was housing only uh, Mexican-American workers who were on strike, on a lemon strike in the region. So that's its own other story. The FSA housing these uh, workers who'd been evicted from the growers' camps. And um, it's an exchange between the ethnographers and, and two individuals, Jose Flores and Augustus Martinez. And it's an it's an exchange about this, like, you know, again, promise of citizenship, um, as you described it. And, and they're saying, you know, so do you think you can become Americanized? The ethnographers, you know, do you think Mexicans could learn the democratic way? And uh, Flores and Martinez are like, sure, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're like, we want this. And they they almost sort of flip the script and they say, look, it's not us. We're invested in this. It's mainstream society that needs to be Americanized. It's them who needs to understand, right, that we're not being treated with our full rights of citizenship. So absolutely, let's work together. Let's invest. We we want to push that Um that claim forward. Um, so, you know, in some ways, the limitations are that the FSA often depicted uh, migrants, positioned them particularly, um, you know, again, to sort of highlight those who'd been working in, in agriculture even prior to the 1930s, uh, as naive to to what the sort of promises of citizenship and democracy were, right? They needed to be taught. They needed to be trained. They would practice this in the camps so that they could exercise it outside of the camps. And that was very problematic for the reasons uh, Flores and Martinez outlined that, look, they knew it. In fact, they were carrying out a strike in that moment for these demands, right? They understood it, but did the rest of the nation understand it? And, you know, that's part of the other limitation that, the FSA um, had this sort of intention to, again, uh, enfranchise and democratize farm workers to make the nation recognize their rights of citizenship. And they advanced this through what I call their democratic script, you know, this kind of standardized language again, and how, you know, farm workers should should receive these rights. But they did this in a way that often failed to really grapple with farm workers' own understandings of their limited citizenship and their own histories of disenfranchisement or of racial exploitation, um, you know, despite their legal status, despite, you know, regional issues uh, uh, constructing their economic subjugation. So, they didn't really dive deep enough into migrants' own claims um, and, again, understandings of, of civic belonging and so forth. So we have, you know, this great book in front of us. Once again, Veronica Martinez Masuda's 
migrant citizenship, race, rights, and reform in the U.S. farm labor camp program. So we have this great book in front of us. We've been talking about it this whole time. But what might we expect from you in the future? And I know this just came out. So if you want to say I'm taking a break, nothing, (laughs) you're not going to see anything from me. I'm going dark. That's completely okay. (laughs) Well, admittedly, I will say, I don't know, maybe our listeners are feeling this as well. I had intended to at least take some kind of a break this summer. And now I have small children at home full time. And, uh, you know, all of the the unknowns in the future, we're all in a, in a holding pattern, if you will. So uh, a break will come at some point. But um, fortunately, I'm in a privileged enough position that I that I can continue to think and write and research. And that does bring me uh, some some sense of, of stability in these moments. And so um, I have started to think about my second book. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, it, it is kind of an elaboration of this project. Um, that second book is titled Farm Workers Sweat Equity the self-help housing movement and investment against migrant poverty. And what I hope to do is advance our understanding of how for farm worker families, housing rights have been intimately tied to their civil rights fight for decent wages, human dignity, uh, full citizenship, as we were just talking about. So um, more specifically, the book is exploring the history of a rural cooperative housing movement for farm workers um, and other rural poor people in the United States in the 1960s. It looks at the role of a nonprofit organization called Self-Help Enterprises, Inc., um, which emerges in Visalia, California in 1965. And uh, that, uh, the sort of self-help movement for farm workers, eventually expands under the direction of the international self-help Housing Associates, which was an umbrella organization in Washington, D.C. And um, the link there is that for some time in its sort of early formation, that uh, that association was actually run by a former camp manager, Clay Cochran, who was a manager in Westlaco, Texas, of, of one of these FSA camps. So you kind of see the thread, right, of that ideological commitment kind of coming back around in the war on poverty in the 1960s. And um, what I hope to show is that, you know, while we've done a lot, um, U.S. historians in particular, to talk about urban housing initiatives during the 60s uh, through I think I'm probably going to go into at least the 80s in that book. Um, We're still not really giving enough attention to studying the problem of rural slums or rural homelessness, as it was often termed by federal officials at that time. So I'm hoping that farm workers sweat equity can can do that to contribute to the discourse on how uh, the political economy of the war on poverty differed from the New Deal and how agencies like the Office of Economic Opportunity, you know, either effectively or unsuccessfully uh, employed federal anti-poverty initiatives to empower agricultural workers. Well, that certainly sounds interesting. I'm sure when that book is eventually out, we will have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you again for having me. And thanks again to our listeners. <laughs>